Hi listeners, and thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Until March 2020, Fantasy Animation are delighted to be curating a series of screenings at the Cinema Museum, featuring Q&As with a variety of special guests, as well as a few live podcast recordings. Full details of each of the screenings can be found on the Cinema Museum website, that's www.cinemamuseum.org.uk. But for now, enjoy the show. listeners and welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast um, with me Alex Sargent and with me Chris Holliday. Uh, welcome to your fortnightly guide on the worlds of paintings, drawings, stories and dragons. Um, so this week we're doing um, Ex Machina, Chris. We are. I'm very excited. I was, I'm, was just saying to you off air that these sort of post-human uh, cyborg android movies haunt me but in a good way so I'm excited to sort of get my teeth into my um, uh, into the circuitry of this film I should say. Oh nice pun already. You're oh, welcome. We're, 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 we're smashing it. <laughs> we're off and running. Um, um, but uh, luckily it won't just be us two rambling on um, today. We have a wonderful special guest with us, um, Andrew Whitehurst, who is an experienced visual effects artist, um, has previously worked on uh, Hollywood productions like Troy, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which we've done an episode on a couple of months we ago. Did. So uh, we'll have to talk to you about that at some point. Um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, and of course Ex Machina, which he, alongside his three collaborators, received an Academy Award for Best of X in 2016. Um, Andrew currently works as the creative director and VFX supervisor at Double Negative, Studios here in London and has supervised effects on other productions including Paddington, Skyfall and Spectre. Skyfall, yes, obligatory um, bomb reference right at the start. So Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, thank you for having me. So, um, Ex Machina um, is, is, a, is a sort of brain teaser of a movie that sort of almost provokes conversation, so let's, let's, let's have one. Um, I'd be interested to know um, as a sort of opening um, preamble uh, how you came involved on the film, uh, what role you served on it, and if you could just sort of give listeners a sort of um, uh, up-to-date um, you know, synopsis of, of your involvement on the project. Um, so I served as the visual effects supervisor on the film, uh, and that role essentially means that anything that isn't shot in camera is my fault. Um, <laughs> and I, I was involved because uh, Alex and his producers came to Double Negative, DNEG, who I work for, and they had written the script, Alex had written the script at that point, and he'd also worked with an amazing comic book artist called Jock to do some initial concepts. Uh, so when Alex came to us, there was a screenplay and there were some moody type concepts. So there was nothing very specific in detail, but it was this is the vibe of the piece. Yeah. Uh, and that began a conversation uh, between Alex and me about the kind of things that we would like to see in an Android. And we then started the design process in earnest. Uh, we had to figure out a way of filming it practically because it's a very low budget movie for that amount of visual effects work. So we needed to think about a lot of the practical considerations as well as the sort of aesthetics and the, and the larger artistic concerns that we might have. And over time, we figured out a way of shooting the film efficiently and a way of designing a character that actually felt plausible in the world that was being described. And that took, I don't know, six months or something. And then there was a six-week shoot. And then we worked for a year and a bit afterwards to actually do the work. 
So you're working with the raw material, you're working with the live action footage, and then you take this material and you you feed into it. Because one of the things, one of the questions I, I had, one of the points I, I noted when I was watching the film is all the different kind of surfaces and reflective surfaces and spaces and things. And I was thinking all the time about your labour on the film and, and how all of this sort of comes together. And clearly it was a very challenging project, um, given, the, as you said, the budget that you were working with, but also the fact that there's, I, I guess, any any shot with um, Ava in it, which is a lot of the movie is an effect shot, and so you're, you're in it a lot, sort of. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my involvement on a film, a, a visual effects supervisor will generally join a film very early in pre-production and is right there to when the project bleeds out and dies at the end. Uh, it's, I mean, really, it's only the producers, the director, and me who will be on the film for that run of time because you, you have to. You need to have that involvement in pre-production to make sure that everything is designed in a way that we can shoot things when we get to the shoot to give us the material to enable us to do the best job possible in, in post-production. So, I mean, I was there every single day of the shoot um, and, and through pre-production and, and through post. Um, but it was... The, the the complexity certainly is is multiplied by the fact that Marco and Mish, who's the production designer and set decorator, do really like setting things in glass boxes. Right. <laughs> so whenever you see Ava, you're generally also seeing reflections of Ava, which yep. means we have to do the visual effects and the reflections. And not only do you have that, but often you'll have, if we're shooting through a piece of glass, you'll have a refracted Ava as well. So there's plenty of shots where when you think, oh, I'm looking at Ava, you're actually looking at three or four different Avas because we've had to do three or four different versions to account for all of the reflections and refractions that you're seeing. So the, the labour is is pretty heavy. Um, also, the Rob Hardy, the, the DP, likes to shoot with um, anamorphic lenses, and particularly uh, 70s, 80s uh, anamorphic lenses, which have a very beautiful, soft quality to them and, and aesthetically are absolutely the right choice for the project because they have a gentleness that really contrasts strongly with the very rectilinear designs of the set and with the hardness of the of the robot. But they are very difficult to work with in post-production because they have a lot of quirks that we need to replicate in our CG that means that there's an awful lot of looking at things and comparing them against the, the source material and go, oh, actually, that bit should be a bit softer there and, oh, there's some chromatic aberrations over here we need to copy. And, 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 and. Yeah. And so there's, a, there's this very forensic analysis that has to happen on every single shot to make sure that even once we've created a CG version of Ava, that CG version can then be blended seamlessly in with the photography. I've got like 50 questions yeah. queued up in my head. I'm, if I can have two, but and then, can have then two. Chris, you can have your podcast back. Um, so what you're saying there, it, uh, a lot of it's about sort of the labour involved in, in creating the film. And in a film that's so much about sort of where we find human agency and things like that, it, it occurs to me that sounds like there's a very lengthy pre-production on this thing that you were involved with and then a very lengthy post-production. The production is six weeks. The, right? sh the shoot was six weeks. So, it's, so the first thing to note is how amazing it is that uh, so many viewers focus on the fact that it stars some actors and all this stuff when actually the, the labour is mm. before and after. So I guess my first question would be what were you doing in pre-production? I think I can get a handle on sort of what you might be doing in post but what were you setting up in pre-production? So, so pre-production is designing Ava. Okay. Um, and the design of Ava is directly tied in with how do we film 
Alicia and what should Alicia be wearing on set in order for us to get what we need to come in later and, and to, exactly, the body and to, all that sort of stuff exactly to basically remove her, her body <laughs> apart from her face her hands and her feet and replace everything with, with a CG version yeah um, so there, there's, a, there's a design aspect which is aesthetic and is story world driven so I mean my uh, and with all of these design things uh, uh, and with all of these designs, there is certainly a temptation to go and look at other robots that have been done, and there is no shortage throughout <laughs> cinema and comic book history. But the first rule I made for everybody, including me, working on it is nobody's allowed to look at robots. So what we did do is we looked at a lot of um, modernist sculpture, so a lot of sort of Constantin Brancusi, people like that. We looked at a lot of... Uh, engineering where strength to weight is important so things like racing car suspension um, the frames on high-end bicycles if you look at Ava's uh, elbow joints it's basically the bottom bracket off a very very fancy high-end road bike in terms of shape and design and idea and so we would look at okay well maybe the bones should be made out of carbon fiber because it's light and we're looking well no, that doesn't really work because carbon fiber wears when you have bits rubbing against one another so no we should make that out of aluminium all of those sorts of conversations have to happen because an audience, even if they're not an engineering audience, has a subliminal understanding of what a machine should look like if it is working properly. And I wanted to make sure that we didn't make something that was a cheat. So when we designed Ava, every single joint and every single muscle is in the right place to do the job that it does. And that serves two functions. One, it means that because it mimics what a human body does, we can put it in the positions that Alicia Vikander is capable of taking so that we will actually have plausible body shapes to match her performance. And the other reason is because it ties in with an audience's innate understanding of this feels right or this doesn't feel right. So when the muscles move and they bunch, which they do, you sense that. You don't you're not clocking it, you're not thinking about it. Similarly, we've got cables that run through the torso and through the limbs. And they have small amounts of jiggle in them when they when she's moving. And it's interesting because there were a couple of occasions where we, we would do a render and the that particular piece of animation, for whatever reason, had not simulated properly and so it switched off. And suddenly the movement felt very leaden. And then we just ran exactly the same piece of animation in terms of the movement of the limbs, but with that secondary animation on top of it, and then the fluidity comes back. So it's looking for those details are ultra important. And the, the last reason for having to design her in a very, very uh, conscientious in industrial designer kind of way is that there's a scene that's not in the finished cut of the film that takes place in the lab where Nathan and Caleb talk about the, the brain. Uh, and in the back of the lab there is a gurney and on that there are all the pieces required to build another Ava. And there was another scene that took place in there that, as I say, isn't in the finished cut. But what it meant was that also in pre-production, a, a 3D print of the entire component set of parts required to build an Ava were printed out and chromed and all of the rest of it and laid out on that gurney. And they had to be able to slot together if we needed them to work properly. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why for a film like this, you can't do like you do on something like Transformers, which is a massive cheat because you just have all of these shapes that are interpenetrating. It doesn't matter because it's total fantasy to make the character believable you need to make her physicality believable I think you've just answered my second question but I'll, but I'll ask it anyway because otherwise I'm redundant which is um, 
you've worked on films that, you know, high fantasy, explicit fantasy moves, and you've worked on a film like this, which is attempting, you know, some sort of level of realism. And a lot of what you're saying there is about getting it as realistic as possible. Um, do Are you conscious of the two genres in your work? And does it affect how you go about your creative process? Are you aware that, okay, this one needs to fit in with this kind of storytelling, so there's less of an onus on realism or anything like that? You always have to be very aware of what has gone before in the work that you do. Uh, and that's either to try and reject it or to work with it and embrace it and perhaps extend it in some way. And certainly if you are if you're doing something like Ex Machina, yes, I mean, you are trying to hit a very plausible, physically believable design. But, and, and this actually was something that I really only noticed after we'd finished the project and I was looking back on it, there is so much Mobius in Ava, and I'm a total Mobius nut, and Alex Garland is a total Mobius nut. And so I just think that subconsciously when we were working through designs and going, oh, that's actually appealing to us, that's appealing to us, and refining things, that whole background knowledge of Jean Giraud's work is just there, and I can't escape it. Hmm. So I, I can try all I like, and I did my best to say we're not going to look at robots and we're going to do this properly and we're going to design this as if we were industrial designers tasked with building a, an android, but I can't escape everything that I've seen. I can't escape everything I've read. And I think it's a mistake too, because again, an audience comes in with their prior experience and their knowledge, and you need to sort of tickle those parts of their brain so that they feel engaged with it. Because you, can, you could design something that is utterly other, and you can render, we, we now have the technology where we can render things where all of the materials behave in the correct way and the light is correctly simulated and so forth. And what that means is you, we could make a picture that says, if you had this thing and it was in this space, this is exactly what it would look like. But that doesn't necessarily chime with an audience as to something that actually feels plausible and believable. And a vast percentage of what we do in visual effects is psychology. You know, if you actually look at a lot of old matte paintings, they are incredibly crude in terms of the amount of non-detail that's within them. But they're brilliant because what they do is where you need a little bit of detail, it's painted in, and where you don't, it's not there. And when it's shot on 35mm film, it's a little bit more forgiving than, than modern digital cameras and digital projection is. When you look at it, you, you, you are totally taken into this world because the person that's painted this knows what's important and has figured out that's what we need to create as an image that an audience will buy into. And that's them looking back through all of the history of painting. And we are then leveraging the entire history of painting, everything that matte painting has, traditional matte painting has taught us, and everything that we can bring to it as well. So we're always standing on the shoulders of giants. You can't not. Mm. Sounds like genre almost works as a sort of force for believability in, in some ways. I, I, there's a, a cognitive theorist, um, Torben Grodel, who writes about sort of um, the relationship between cognitive psychology and the supernatural, and he and talks about sort of how supernatural imageries often play on our habitual reasoning as much as our cognitive reasoning. So things make sense because they've been like this rather than things have to be like this. And it sounds like genre expectations, genre I, iconographies. I don't think are it's even a genre that. thing. I mean, it's it's. It's an anything involving imagery thing. Mm. We are so 
inundated with imagery, which is almost all created from a Western art sensibility over, you know, when do we start getting perspective right? Let's say about 1200 and something. <laughs> from then on, all of that feeds into what we do now. And again, we, I mean, to, to, to take another film uh, that I worked on with Alex, Annihilation, there's a humanoid figure at the end of that film. And for that, we went and looked at a lot of, um, a, a lot of art made by other cultures as to how they had represented the human form and particularly um, found a lot of inspiration in Cycladic sculpture, uh, so very, very old Greek um, sculpture. Not that the finished thing looks like that, but you look at these things and you, there is, it taps into something that we have just buried deep in our subconscious because of the way we've been experiencing imagery our entire lives. And a lot of that's then passed down from the way our parents and their parents experience things. So there's, there is any time you're making any piece of art, you are always referencing, generally leveraging, what has gone before. You know, there is nothing new under the sun, but there is mixing and trying different things, and that's what we try and do. It seems like you had, obviously, a lot of, you know, you have you have your your role on the on the film, but then you're bringing in all these other um, subject areas and topics and and um, experiences, and and it seems like you ha you actually have to play a lot of roles because you are having different kind of creative hats on at any any one time. Um, obviously, the film, and maybe you know, we'll we'll get to this, but obviously, the film itself has a sort of surrogate creator within it, of course, um, whose intentions become the sort of stuff of narrative, which which is in, interesting in and of itself. Um, but the way that Nathan describes search engines, that scene you were talking about. The Search engines and the human mind um, talks about impulse response, fluid, imperfect, patterned, and chaotic. So that sort of that pullback from the real. What's interesting, I think, when you were talking about movement um, and that there's something in the way that Ava will move that will just read, even subconsciously to an audience, it won't be flagged up as an quote-unquote an effect, but will, will be something that will, will allow the spectator to register a certain impression of reality. Um, a lot of writing, certainly within visual effects, or even computer animation, computer-generated imagery, um, is that we've reached the point where, okay, so we know that things aren't real and that there is no indexical one-to-one -one relationship between what's in front of the camera you know, we know that computers can create. What we now need to do is think about how we understand realism by moving, or to quote uh, the title of an article by Tom Gunning, moving, thinking about reality and CGI by moving away from the index. And, and his main thing is movement. Movement's like the key thing. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the object looks like in terms of texture or um, voice or something like this. It's actually the movement of the character. So it seems that's exactly what you're... You can make this... In this case, you know, Ava is... is on the human side of fantastical creatures, if you like, um, but there is something quite interesting about the 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 anchorage that movement provides in a character that you know nobody knows what a dinosaur looks like. Everyone knows what a human looks like and how they move, and so you've got yes. a real. Uh, it's more of a challenge. That's the thing that visual effects artists and animators say. It's more of a challenge to do humans because we know what they look like and well, how they move. Well, particularly with faces, I mean, we can't do humans yet. Yeah, and the the. Well, the, the aspect of humans which we can do is it is totally possible to create an utterly photoreal head. That problem, if it, if it can be defined as a problem, is solved. Making it move is astonishingly difficult. And the reason why it's astonishingly difficult is because 
the way your face actually moves is your brain comes up with a some sort of uh, impulse which then pushes muscles around in your face which then pushes fat which then pushes the fascia under the skin which then moves the skin around to give you a recognizable smile what in visual effects we are trying to do is reverse engineer that so we want to be able to get we want to say recognizable smile but what we the way animation works is that you then push the face around to get that shape so you can probably create a pose that is indistinguishable from reality but then when you're trying to move to another facial shape that's when you hit problems and the way that most facial animation works is uh, it's actually founded on uh, psychological work so there's a set of facial shapes called the facts set f-a-c-s i can't remember what the acronym stands for but it's a set of about 32 different facial shapes if you imagine making an extreme ooh shape and and smiling as widely as you can and raising your eyebrows that kind of thing and the reason it was come up with was so that psychologists could look at uh, the facial movement of very people with very different physiognomies and be able to create a data set of what their face is doing for any particular stimulus that is actually in numbers rather than sort of trying to take a wild stab in the dark at looking to completely different faces. And what we do is we create those facts shapes and we then blend them together to try and create a facial performance. The problem with that is it looks like what it is, which is a mixture of a pre-existing set of facial shapes. And you, and we try different things about adding some sort of skin simulations on the top of it, but we have not cracked it yet. And I, my personal take, and this is entirely my take, is I think until we utterly redefine the way that we are trying to do facial animation, we're not going to get there. It seems there's so much in this film that is about, uh, we say this at the podcast every single time we record an episode, it's on our band list, but so much of this is about the process that takes, that it was required to make this story, right? Mm. And there's so much of the film reflects well, on these Well, that's why issues. it's Alicia's face. There's only one shot in the film where there's a bit of CG face, and that's the bit where she gets her arm knocked off, and that's because when we were filming it, Alicia had her real arm in front of her face and she was disinclined to allow us to saw her actual arm off. Yeah, um, seems fair, yeah. you know. Well, these, <laughs> these performers, yeah. just, it's not method enough. <laughs> no, but, no. Um, so, but that's the only bit where we actually had to rebuild some face. And the, the reason for that is certainly on a movie with the budget of Ex Machina, we do not want to go anywhere near trying to create a CG facial performance because if you are going to try it, the thing that you need is masses of time um, and a lot of people because it's unbelievably labour intensive to do it well. In terms of the kind of context for the for the film, before we sort of, I guess, move into it uh, in earnest, is you mentioned obviously that your reference points not being other robots, um, but what was I think what was striking certainly for me is obviously this film. I wouldn't say that it comes out at a time where there are a cluster of maybe maybe that's right that there are a cluster of movies or movies that are about these sorts of of themes and and I think one of the um one of the things that I suppose we we think about in this podcast is the ability of animation to do fantasy or to be able to do these things and obviously uh, if we think about films so when I was watching it I was thinking of this treatment of post-humanism versus a film like uh, Chappie from 2015 um, or uh, Her or Under the Skin or ways in which there is this collision between um, 
humanity and the machine or biology and technology. And so I, I, I guess from my perspective, I just wondered, were you, were you conscious that there was a, I don't know, something resembling, again, I'm not going to say movement, but was there, were you aware that there were other movies coming out within two or three years or that, that you were thinking, okay, so these, we're part of a, um, you know, maybe there's a, a broader sort of cultural moment where we're thinking about, you know, the post-Siri age where we can now talk to... I, I don't know, I just wonder whether that was part of... Were you conscious of that, that sort of trend, if you like? Honestly, no. Um, you tend to be... Making films it requires a lot of time and uh, mental effort and attention. So you tend to be very myopic when you're working on a movie. And I really was not aware of much else going on at the cinema at that time because to be honest once I've if I've spent a whole day working on a film I don't really want to go and watch another one yep. I'd rather go home and draw or play guitar or something yeah so and, and I'm not alone in that I mean I think most people would say it, they have other things that they need to do to stop them going bonkers when they're right in the midst sure. of, of making a film so n no but I think that certainly when Alex or and whoever wrote the the other yeah, films yeah, is is writing on things, you know the, the thing that is tickling their brain and making them go oh actually make, I should that's, there's a story in something yeah, they, around these are a here set somewhere of themes that we can work with yeah. exactly it, it is drawn from the world which surrounds them I mean which is always the case with science fiction you know I mean it's about now it's not about the future um, and that so I think it's in the writing stage certainly I mean when whoever's writing these things yes I mean if, you know, if there is a zeitgeist I guess that they are all plugged into it because they are culturally aware people at yeah. a particular point and in time and technology is doing things exactly. that they might want to respond to yeah but it won't, once we're involved honestly no it's, it's the paradox of that though that perhaps the zeitgeist is caused by you know the work that you guys do in a respect and that well, you're getting so close yes, to you do. Of I mean, the lines I mean it was interesting that for a sort of a solid 18 months after Ex Machina came out every single newspaper article about artificial intelligence used to steal from Ex Machina as its image so I mean yes I mean you know pop does eat itself or, yeah yeah, you know, yeah. So. So you become this sort of, you know, this in this feedback loop with the culture. So you're kind of creating and feeding off at the same yes. time. And that's but I think that ties back into what I was saying at the beginning about banning everybody from looking at robots. Because I do have a big issue when, and this is something that genre f struggles with a lot, is uh, very, very incestuous aesthetics. Mm. Um, and I will often work with concept artists, let's say, whose only reference is other concept art. And you can say, well, what about you know, Caravaggio? Or what about the way that the cave drawings in yeah. Chauvet-Pondoc or whatever? They have no idea. They, they know other concept art from other movies. And so when you look at a lot of sci-fi fantasy movies, the thing that you are looking at is this continual digestion and redigestion of imagery from the same genre, and that I really do try and fight against. Yeah, it's like, and I, and it, which is not to say I'm claiming any originality here. I'm just trying to say that we ought to cast our nets a little wider in terms of the cultural references which we should be drawing on to help produce our work. If any of my students are listening right now, just. Just listen back to what was just said there. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but I like the idea of you know, this, the way that genres and genre theory work and these sorts of re um, uh, 
was it kind of continuities and differences and this is how same same but different this is you know this is how genres work but it's that incestuousness of it is interesting because then then you're the genres or the the additions to the genre are not are not necessary they're not repeating these same generic elements they seem to be kind of copying all their representations of representations and and suddenly you get this sort of quite abstracted idea of what genres actually are and i think that's that's a really interesting way of thinking about something like ex machina as this real interdisciplinary space where you're drawing from different reference points um i'm sure the same thing goes on in um you know certain kinds of animation studios where they're not just interested in the history of Hollywood animation from 1937 onwards, what they're interested in is a sculpture or something like that where they're pulling in all these different influences. So I think that's, and certainly as we said in a film that's about creation and very explicitly so, these characters are talking about the thought processes and talking about authenticity and believability and how machines can work like humans and how you can convince one. And I find that that process of individuation, becoming becoming human, works on both counts. Actually, and what I think is interesting about the film, it's as much about Caleb's individuation as it is Ava's and actually who's interviewing who. And one of the final, um, you know, we might as well jump ahead to the final, sure. one of the final bits of the movie is the, is this very famously the sort of final session where it's not a session at all. You know, Ava session seven was not a, there's no session going on here. Mm-hmm. So I find that that's when, that was when the haunting for me kind of began in earnest because I find it kind of fascinating. Okay, I'm just going to interrupt that pre-recorded conversation that's happening through a microphone. For another pre-recorded conversation <laughs> that's happening through a microphone. Yes, to advertise a non-pre-recorded conversation that will be happening live in person in a real place in a real space. So this is the, now and let me get this right, this is the live at the Cinema Museum fantasy animation screening series, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. I don't know about you, Chris, I like these podcasts, but I sometimes wish that I could just see people stand on stage, say things, and then perhaps watch a movie afterwards. Is there a Q&A involved? Sure, why not? And maybe can get involved some maybe some animators some academics and some other experts in the world of fantasy animation to talk about the movies and introduce them and then stick around for a Q&A so this seems like a good idea but surely such an event can't be happening well don't you worry it is it'll be happening all throughout 2019 and into 2020 there'll be once a month towards the end of the year and you can find all information on the cinema museum website that's cinemamuseum.org.uk uh, it's in London, in, in the Kennington area, so people need to be probably based in London or around that neck of the woods, or super keen to come down, in which case we'd love to have you. And what kind of films can uh, potential audiences expect as part of this screening <laughs> series? What about Shrek, the CGI 2001 DreamWorks satire? Sounds like something I would have chosen. Sounds like something you'd have chosen indeed. What about any Ralph Bakshi? I don't know, that sounds like something I'd chosen, but why not? Why don't we throw in a Wizards from 1977? Maybe something to tie into um, the very recent Dark Crystal series. Maybe something you know, involving the Beatles and Yellow Submarine. Well, that would be great because there are previous podcasts on that. We could talk all about that. We could talk all about all those things. So if you like the Fancy Animation podcast and you'd like to see us do it live and in the flesh, come along to the Cinema Art Museum back end of 2019 into 2020 um, and get involved in the conversation. Tickets will be priced at £6. You can find all the information on the Cinema Museum website. We'll be having guests that will be confirmed nearer the time, um, but the first few screenings are already taking place and you can, you can find all about them. Please do come along. We'd love to see you. But for now, we should get back to the show. Sure. Yeah, what I, I, what I you know, find fascinating about all these kind of... There seems to be this repeated, I don't know, creative... Disjunct's not the right word. Something more productive than that. But there's lots of movies where there's a technological innovation going taking place on screen, framed around a narrative that is scared of the technological innovation that's taking place on screen. 
And I just, like, as a creator whose actual job in, in this movie is to get the technology working well <laughs> in a film that's worried about what happens if you get the technology working too well, mm. does that in any way sort of feed into the process at all? Are you aware we're making this that basically, you, you, you know, if you're, in the, if you're in this movie, you are, you are the baddies, you know? Um, uh. not, not so much. I mean, I think with, with Ex Machina, the hard bit of doing the film is copying Alicia's movements well enough. The, the, the making of something that looks real in a, in a single frame is comparatively easy. Uh, and, and I say that because I've been doing this for 20 years, so I have a vague idea what I'll I'm doing by this I'll point. I'll give it a go. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, go for it. But, um, <laughs> but it, the, the hard bit is the human bit. Mm. And, and the, that actually, I think, feeds also back into going back into prep when I was talking with um, Alex and Rob Hardy, the DP, and they were very, very nervous because, and understandably so, because really what Ex Machina is as a film is a series of conversations. And they're all a series of conversations between two people. And if those scenes, when you cut them together, do not work as a piece of drama, it doesn't matter what we do in visual effects, you are screwed. So we had to come up with a way when we were designing how we were going to shoot the film from a visual effects standpoint that meant that Alex and Rob can shoot as if they were shooting any other piece of drama. And that's for them and that's for the actors. Because you need that connection to happen between those two actors because that's what gives you the plausibility. And then we work with that to try and add our extra however many percent on top of that. So it's the human aspect that's the difficult bit. It's not the technical aspect, and it's and the so the and the bit that's difficult is is in copying of the movement, and that just requires artists with a tremendous amount of patience and sensitivity to really look at how the movement is, duplicating it, watching it back hundreds of times, and going, no, that doesn't feel quite right. This bit doesn't feel quite right. Let's tweak this. Let's adjust that. And we're talking sub-pixel levels of accuracy here. So it's, that's the hard part. The hard part is the emotional, human, psychological part. The easier part is the, does this look like a chrome robot in a lab? Whose performance is Ava on screen then? Alicia, 100%. So generally the way it usually works with most CG characters is that you will either do uh, motion capture where the performance is actually digitally encoded and then given to an animator or you body track the performance where you have a digital mannequin that you frame by frame put in the same places as the actor which is how Ava was done but ordinarily there will be an animation pass where an animator will finesse what the actor's done to make the movements more fluid or more beautiful and again this was one of the decisions we made up front was no we're not going to do that what we're going to do is we're going to do the absolutely copper-bottomed best bit of body tracking that has been done and we know this is going to be brutally hard work but it's going to be worth it because every single movement that you see is exactly what Alicia did and then that then that performance and that every single joint and movement copied and then that put into our rig that is our robot and then our robot moves around in exactly the same way as Alicia did. So what you see in terms of walking, gesturing, everything is 100% Alicia Vikander. 
That's a really fascinating answer. We, we, we did an interview a few weeks, a few episodes back with an anime from Ardman talking about pirates. And a lot of the conversation was about um, performance and how he saw his animation as a performance. He is, he is performing the pirate captain whilst animating. But that's, that's very different to what you've just described yeah. there. So you wouldn't see what you're doing as a no. performance. No, absolutely not. I mean, there are plenty of jobs where we certainly do do the performance. Mm. But this, again, because it's this, every single scene is this delicate conversation between two people. Every, every gesture, every subtle movement matters. You know, there's a, there is a shot in Ex Machina which was an absolute swine to do. It's 1,600 frames long, so it's over a minute. And it's a mid-shot of Ava holding up a drawing to Caleb and talking. And at the end, she puts the drawing down, gets up and walks away. It took a tracking artist three months to track that shot. And he did nothing else in that time other than track every single tiny movement of Alicia's hand against the paper, everything, to get it just right. But that's what it takes, because that's what the performance is in that scene. And if the movement was something else, when you looked at it in the edit, it wouldn't feel right. It's not, it's, it's a, the, the performances are captured on the day, and the performances are what the actors are giving to the camera based on where the camera is in that particular time for that particular take. That's what the magic is. That's the human connection. That's the thing that we needed to capture and hold on to. If we're, if we're doing something else where you're doing uh, you know, another character, like, um, I don't know, let's say the bear in Annihilation, that's entirely animated. You know, we didn't have a bear. <laughs> uh, we particularly didn't have a bear with a limp. But we thought, you know, this is this creature, we know how to do this. I had a very skilled team of animators. We talked through what the, the psychology of the scene is in that it wants to be this creature which is terrifying in its power but also has a vulnerability because it's this sick animal. So it all, which again, I guess, adds to the terror because of, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal. But that is an entirely creative performance. That performance is ours in as much as it's entirely created in visual effects. In Ex Machina, the performance is Alicia's. Yeah, okay, so there's a, there's a crucial element of the human going on again here. So maybe actually this disjunct that I... Well, I don't know with that, because I think, I, I don't, actually, I don't think it is, the, it's not the humanity. I mean, if you look at something like uh, Spider-Man Into the Spideyverse, the humanity of all of the performances in that movie is incredible. I mean, you just feel every single character so deeply and their humanity. They're not photoreal humans. I mean, I mean, aesthetically, I love, I love everything yeah. about that film. I think it's an <laughs> absolute masterpiece. But the the performances are very, very human. But they're animated, so it's not the humanity. I think that's the it's it's the thing that is different between um, Ex Machina and anything else I've worked on in regard to what you're saying is that it's the the delicacy and the intimacy of those conversations. And it's because it's a very measured film where the camera moves very slowly, the takes are very long, you get to really look and spend time with the, the, the cast. And th what they are bringing is what gives you the tension. You know, it, that's, that's, the, that's the magic in terms of the humanity there. So there's nothing we can do to add. I mean, we could do a lot to detract from it, but 
our job was to turn an actor into a robot whilst maintaining every aspect of her performance as best we could. I think it's interesting these questions around performance within a digital context where we talk about ownership and I like the idea that it, you know, performance belongs to certain people or certain, certain components rather than, or people rather than the creative, maybe it's um, defined spheres of labour, maybe that's what it is, creatively defined, you know, different ways in which we might allocate and think about the ownership of, of performance. But it seems to me that that's really what, the, actually that's what the film is about because they talk quite explicitly at the start, Nathan talks very explicitly about Caleb being the human component within this test, within this set of tests that will, will be, will kind of structure the movie, these, these seven, if you like, six proper, but seven really yeah. um, kind of sessions. Yeah. But I think the thing about movement and conversation, this is obviously a very performance-centred film. It's very theatrical, I think, in that respect, that it's anchored to these series of conversations. But crucially, because the conversations themselves are supported by the ideas of suspicion, that's what makes it really important because Caleb almost instantly kind of rubs up against Nathan in, in a particular kind of way and is suspicious. And I think it's only the, the, I think it's the second session when Ava reveals that she doesn't believe that Nathan can be trusted. So already you have these themes of suspicion. So it, it is conversation-centred, but it, it has to be because it seems like every, all the character relationships become a series of tests and people aren't quite sure the person that they think that, you know, and this goes back to this point about individuation, who's being, who's the subject and who's the, or who's the master and who's the um, kind of subject. There's that sort of thing. And I, and that's what I really liked about the film, that it it. It was suspicious. The characters were suspicious of each other. Um, humans were suspicious of technology, and obviously that that sort of scene where Caleb is cutting himself to reveal that he is actually biological rather than technological is is like a key moment. And it's it's sort of the yeah, it's the it's that's the threat, and whether the, the individuation is connected to paranoia that he's paranoid that he might be one of them. So yeah. I I think you absolutely like that kind of combat the, the conversations that structure the film. Um, the fact that it, I hadn't really thought about the long takes, but Absolutely, and and also the way in which the characters move, or in some cases don't move. Yeah. So Caleb isn't really moving when he's giving, and that's why he felt like a subject rather than the person kind of creating. No one's really moving very much. It, but it seems like Ava's the one. She's at least she at well, least move or paces maybe a little but bit. But I think more. that's an interesting, and that ties in with you know very very clever piece of production design because the obvious way of designing that set is that. Ava is in a glass box and then your interviewer has the freedom yeah. of the space but that's not the way it's laid out you know that your interviewer is the person who emerges into this sort of protective glass box and then the interviewee has Ava has the space to walk around yeah which is a very interesting way of turning on its head what you might naturally expect that relationship to be and also that then ties in with when you see her, Ava go into her bedroom and you see that there is that big glass window with this tree beyond it but it's still contained within this sort of light well that's when you realise how cruel Nathan is in as much as here's all of the stuff you can't have yeah. and it's just on the other side of this glass and you can't have it Then it get, I suppose it then gets reversed again because given that the climax of the film is about her ultimate given that she spent this entire film as uh, as somebody who is constructed within a space that is constructed and layered and has glass partitions, which has which has the element of fr frustration built into the design of the space itself, that's then reversed at the end when Caleb becomes the print. And so again, it becomes turned on its head again, and then she has the freedom to. And what I really liked about the film were these sorts of like pillow shots where suddenly we're outside and you have a conversation that takes place outside. 
and then we're back in again and it's kind of claustrophobic and 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 uh, but then there's this ex this this expanse that you can't quite see or don't quite understand. Um, yeah, I know we've jumped to the end, but yeah, I find the film fascinating. No, no, I think I think <laughs> I think yeah, and and I um, and I, uh, I I spent a lot of time thinking about the um, the sort of the, the relationship between sort of well the, the way the film taps into issues of sort of uh, gender identity and all this kind of stuff because I think that's such an important. It's massive. I mean, it's it's a film. It's a film about two things. It's a film about how much do we understand about human consciousness answer not very much and how does our culture look at women in their 20s and the answer to that is often in a very not very healthy way yeah uh -huh. could you talk more about that and what the conversations involved in in that kind of side of the production well it's it's but it <sighs> was Alicia I suppose was Alicia kind of on before you then designed the rope do you design the robot around her or because I suppose that's part of her you, the the initial designs were done before Alicia was cast, um, and then once she was cast, we made adjustments. Yeah, uh, her because of her, because of her yeah. physicality, yeah. Um, for sure. But it, it's, I mean, the thing that, and I think it's one of the strongest aspects of the film, which ties into this whole looking at, 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 at gender and particularly the way we look at young women, is no one, I think, when they first watch. Ex Machina in the opening scenes thinks that Ava is naked. Then Ava puts on clothes, and then Ava takes off her clothes again, and now you see her as naked. Nothing has changed, but everything has changed because of the way that we are used to, in so much of the imagery we see, seeing people wearing not very much or, you know, nothing at all, and what that does to us psychologically, I think, is very well explored by that particular part of the film. And a lot of that requires the design of the, of, of Ava, right? Um, which I'm sh be fascinating to hear sort of what the decisions were, what you what you sort of threw around, what ideas were chucked out along the way, because um, because that that the robot, for one of the better term, body has to do a lot of things, and there has to be a sort of line the film treads between evoking the eroticism that it's trying to discuss mm -hmm. and you know I've you know I've, I've googled sort of um, interpretations I read a few reviews last night and I you know I think I think that the interpretations are pretty split into what to read into the movie mm -hmm. which is people's prerogative but I think on one level um, which I'm you know I suspect is that is the reading Alex was, was going for is that this is a film about sort of you know, a, a post uh, post-human feminism where Ava is liberated rises up and sort of is it becomes a sort of you know emancipated uh, yeah. woman as a result of the you know the right. misogyny around her yes. right uh, and then another reading is almost like the film's having its cake and eating it and that there is an element of latent eroticism in the design of of Ava um, you know so I thought I'd throw those two yeah, interpretations I mean, out I, there I, and I, see what I you mean certainly about the both. former is 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 the intent um, I understand the criticism of the latter um, but I think, th so the, the reason why Ava is designed the way that she is, is that you, from, from looking at it from the psychology of, of Nathan, the creator, is he needs to make something which, I mean, partially maybe does something for him, but also he wants to try and persuade another heterosexual male that they want to have feelings about this entity. 
Um, I mean, I don't even know really whether we could honestly describe mm. Ava as he, she, or, you know, Ava is Ava. Um, and in order to do that, it needs to push certain buttons for Caleb, who you generally get the impression from other lines of dialogue is perhaps not the most you know, emotionally sophisticated of people. But <laughs> Caleb is also representative of our culture as well. And that is the way that we tend to look at women, which is also then why when you have the scene at the end with all of the other androids hanging up in the closet in Nathan's bedroom, which is beyond twisted, that's why. You know, that's why that's there. It's, it, it is a very uh, strident uh, criticism of the way that we look. Um, you know, it, it is the male gaze personified. I mean, the fact that one of one of the robots that's hanging up, the body is built in exactly the same way as the cover of the female eunuch, is not accidental. So, is the, I guess the if we're thinking about there that there are two. I mean, the, the cast of the film is if we you know exclude those um, kind of hanging women up. You know, it's very small. You know, it's, mm. it's, that's what I think makes it very, as you said, very kind of theatrical and, and performance and dialogue heavy. Um, I suppose the, for all intents and purposes, it's Nathan who is the you know villain. He is the CEO of this company, and he, as you say, he's hot. he's um, creating these um, androids for certain reasons that we are not quite sure of. Them. And part of our alignment, I think, with uh, Caleb is to try and he he goes on a sense of discovery and finds out. But then it seems like the film is also criticizing him, given that we don't really get much of his backstory. He wins the lottery straight away. Really, you team Caleb? No well, but this is the thing. This is the thing: is that the film sets that up as he's this outsider who's kind of coming, and he and he's being victimized because the revelation is that he's been, he's the one no, that's being. He's duped. not being victimized. I mean, he 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 is as complicit, yeah, as Nathan is because he's only interested in getting Ava out, not for Ava's emancipation, but because he basically wants to get off with her, yeah, and which is why I have no problem with him being. Locked in an office at the Absolutely. end. Absolutely, um, because because one of the, the the sort of I suppose revelations at the end is that Ava has been designed with his search history in mind what and so desire structures the design of her as a character exactly um and so no absolutely but what what i thought was interesting is that i was ready for the film certainly for the first 30 minutes to not be that i thought it was going to be okay so he's going to rescue her and it'll be wonderful and um and clearly nathan is being framed as as a villain who drinks too much who lives his life to excess who gets hung over and there's a party there's no party mm. he just gets drunk um but you're right that actually it's it I wouldn't say it flips it, but it makes them both complicit in the same, a, a different kind of exploitation yes. of post-human identity. Yes. Um, and so that's what, what I think the well, film... Well, and human identity. And human identity, exactly. So and, and so it's as much about the human component in the film, i.e. the film is, is about an android, but actually it's not. It's as much about the human reaction to that and the different kinds of human well, reactions. It, it's, it is entirely about the human because we have no way of knowing what a non-human consciousness would be um, and there's not really there is aesthetically and narratively a lot less that you could do by trying to represent a non-human consciousness than to represent a human consciousness in another form that says to us that this is how little we understand about who we actually are mm. um, 
you know, every, everything about the, the relationships, about the, the interactions, um, about the levels of self-awareness or not in that film is entirely human. There's something quite interesting, and maybe this is a qu- actually a question for Alex. There's a reference to Alice in Wonderland about through the Looking Glass, and I just I have a question, which is why. I just wonder whether whether the film does that chime with, you know, it's, it's an explicit gesture to, to fantasy, and the film is actually very um, uh, literate and talks about quotations and reference points, and that's one of your quotations, an attribution. And so, uh, Alice through the Looking Glass. Yeah, there's that, and there's also I would argue the the, the opening setup is an allusion to Willy Wonka, no, the, mm. the golden ticket. Mm. Um, Winning the competition, going to visit the, the the and showing you the tricks behind the scenes, all that kind of stuff. To, to me, the, the film is playing with fantasy, and I think mm. is that the, the third party that we're not talking about here in this co- complicit relationship is the audience, right? Mm. In that the film, to you know, to me, sets up a, a, a you know, you think the film's going to be a, a, tur- a Turing test where you are Caleb trying to work out whether um, Ava is is human or not, and then flips that. But 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 in order to do that flip. It has to get you thinking. You know, you, t- you mentioned the male gaze. Well, the male gaze is a theory of, of spectatorship. It's mm. of what the yep. audience is doing as much as what's happening on screen. Um, we have to think what Caleb is doing is what we are doing at the same time. There has to be that alignment, and I think that's where the film plays with the audience quite nicely. So I think there has, to, you know, Ava has to be eroticized mm. because because it, it would be wrong to say that those first twenty minutes aren't trying. To eroticize it in a yeah. way that then pulls the rug yes. under you. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 yes. I mean, that is absolutely the case, and it's done with the eyes open. Did did, did you talk about that? Yeah, in yeah, the absolutely. Process? Yes, I mean, there's there's there's, there's uh, and again, it's sort of um, there's a there's a moment where Kyoko, who's the other character mm-hmm. we should talk about, I guess, yeah. um, is um, lying on a bed in the room where, where all of the the other androids are hung up in the um, cabinet. And I don't think it's the take that ends up in the film, but there was one where we set it up so it looked like Manet's Olympia, which, again, if you're going to look at the history of art and the male gaze is a very mm-hmm. you know, pr- profound uh, example of that and probably the beginning of modern painting. Um, so the, 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 the illusions are all there, and I would say most of them we understood whilst we were filming it, Inevitably, with the film, there are things and there are themes that you find out whilst the edit is happening. You go, okay, actually, that's a thing, isn't it? Okay, right, well, we need to rework this in order to put that in. Um, not so much with Ex Machina, that was more straightforward in the way that it went together, if memory serves. But it, it's all of the things that you're describing were certainly very much front and center in terms of discussion um, before we shot anything and whilst we were shooting it. I mean, it's it, it's what the film is about. I I mean, I, I'm I think on the on the topic of Kyoko, this sort of uh, in-house mute, or at least a character who we are we are told does not speak any English, but is ultimately revealed to be um, to be an android. I guess one of the, the things that the film does does very well is this sort of um, yes, it plays with believability and authenticity, but also this kind of the revelation. And so Kyoko is like a character where. I'm gesturing, but this sort of where the body components get peeled off, and and the layering of humanity and part of uh, Ava's individuation as a as a female, if we mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. speak say very broadly, but as a, an android who looks female yep. or looks like Alicia Vikander, yes. <laughs> um, 
is her acquisition, her kind of physical acquisition of skin or, mm. or something that resembles skin. So you've talked a little bit, I mean, were they parts that, moments that you worked, you know, those sorts of, we've talked about the un, what happens under the skin, if you yes. like, but the kind of revelation of these sorts of layers. Yeah, and, and absolutely. So what what I mean, was going on with that? Well, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of conversation that we had and we did a lot of design work in thinking about how the skin should be applied, what mm. sort of shapes the panels of the skin should be. Should they be uh, have very straight edges so that they felt more mechanistic, yeah. or should they feel like actually sort of you know torn flesh that was being reapplied? And in the end, we went more with the former because the 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 magic is only complete when the last panel is in yeah. place, and then suddenly the you know the whole is you know the pupation is is complete. Um, and that's something that is, again, it, we is in the is in the screenplay. You know, we designed a whole bunch of it up front. We storyboarded it a lot to try and figure out well, what are the angles that we can shoot that are going to best sell this idea or best explain this idea. And you know, I mean, the whole scene begins with her with, with uh, Ava taking the arm off one of the other androids and reattaching it to herself, which is a profoundly non-human thing to, to do mm. uh, ordinarily. Um, so you, it's to go from this uh, surreal, surreality and through the, through the mechanism of applying the, these patches of skin to then transform Ava into something which is uh, physically at least on the surface, indistinguishable from human, but because of what we've gone through throughout the rest of the film, it's like, well, was she not human before? Is she human now? Is she still mm. not human? It, it, it is just a visual way of exploring the idea that, uh, that, that you know, is dualism a thing? Whole mind-body thing, is that a thing? Yeah. It's just like, is our essence entirely contained within our brains or is the physicality a big part of that or not which I think and I haven't read his book um, but Murray Shanahan was somebody that Alex talked to a lot when he was writing and I think that's one of Murray's big areas of research is into sort of the physicality of uh, artificial intelligence uh, processes but I suppose themes of kind of consciousness and embodiment are as you say, it's like a, these these are themes that allow you to play visually, and so actually the the dislocation of her arm, Ava's arm, when she some of this kind of bodily substitution and physicality and and those sorts of things provide a nice contrast to those kinds of scenes where Caleb, well, one where Caleb cuts himself to reveal his humanity, but also Nathan's ultimate mm. kind of demise and the way that his body works under certain kinds of duress, yeah. because we see in the scene that you mentioned earlier that involved the, a bit of facial simulation where her Ava's arm is in front of her, where mm. her arm gets get sort of or her mechanical arm gets sort of few cut off fused and, yeah. and stuff um, you have that scene you have uh, a scene where an earlier version of Ava is banging on the, the glass yes. walls and her arms which is again a nice parallel to Caleb when he's trying yeah. to cut through the glass um, but that's how those kinds of bodies perform under that kind of duress versus well, and it seems like quite a, they're quite durable bodies ultimately mm. because parts can be interchanged. Whereas he, these kind of humanity is ultimately frail and yes. uh, will just. But I think it's also it's the reaction of the individual. So when Ava's arm is smashed off, it, it's not a. She doesn't seem to suffer pain. Yeah. It, I mean, it's more sort of surprise and okay. I don't quite understand what's just happened there. 
uh, and then with a reasonable degree of nonchalance swaps the arm out for another arm, which is something that to us is a much bigger uh, uh, conceptual leap because we suffer pain and Mm. we are very attached to our limbs and therefore when they someone loses it and, 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 and has some sort of prosthesis there's, there's a there is a big psychological aspect to that change in your life mm. whereas for her I guess because she knows no different it's a different thing now does that make her non-human I, I guess so mm. but does that matter I don't know I suppose it then sets up this issue of empathy mm. towards the end. Like if the, if the film's final final act is to place I don't know place her consciousness within a series of decisions, i.e., you know, she's very physical. And actually, I think that fight se- I was going to ask actually about the sort of her fight sequence with Nathan is very you know that is like a feat of of kind of compositing because you've got all these mm. compa- and they're fighting and 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 so that's that seemed to be. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine quite an interesting and, ch- and kind of challenging scene to work on because you're his body and her body, and he flips around and comes yep. on top of her and that sort of thing. Um, but then her her consciousness and and ability to make decisions is then when she then gets up to leave, she she dresses herself both in skin and then in in, in clothing, um, and then leaves Caleb behind this glass, and and there's sort of like a a series of reactions that aren't reactions at all, or sort of blank looks, and there's a smile. I think when she's out. There's, that's, I think the smile is the key because it's the only time in the entire film where we see Ava on her own where she is not reacting to anyone else. So if, you, if we are wanting to make an argument that Ava has consciousness that is in some way human, that is the one shot mm. because it's her reaction to her environment and it's a reaction that's just for her yeah because obviously given that the, the as you said that the film is structured around these conversations and is 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 sort of centered through dialogue i'm her ability to obtain consciousness is is always going to be in reaction or in response to a conversation that she's having with other characters and stuff yeah. um and so i wondered whether her consciousness comes from her reaction with other characters so she doesn't know her her body as well so when her arm gets knocked off she's sort of Oh, I wasn't expecting mm. that. So she's perhaps more conscious of other bodies than she is her own. But then ultimately that smile at the end, as you say, signifies a moment where she's thinking autonomously, independently, yeah. Yeah. without a human the other side of the glass. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that's sort of a, a brief, it's very, very brief, but it's yeah. a, a, mo- a release of sort of <laughs> human jubilation, I guess. I wanted to bring the conversation round to... Um, to me, there, there seems to be two effects going on here, actually. And we've spoken most of the time talking about sort of effects surrounding the human body around performance and, of course, and Ava. And, and that's what the film kind of wants us to do, which is, which is absolutely fine. But there, there's a, certainly in the opening section, there's lots of moments where, like, computers are on display. Not even sort of in an overt, explicit way, but um, a way of cluing us in that this is a near future is the sort of futuristic LED machines that are all around everywhere and and it brought me back to a conversation Chris and I on the podcast of, ooh, of when we did Tron actually I believe about sort of CGI um, or digital technology representing itself on screen rather than being used to rep something else so I wonder if you could just tell our listeners about know, the, the effects that went on in making those kind of things because that's so important to establish that okay this is basically our world mm. and physically mechanically things are pretty similar but digitally things look much more advanced and that's where the clue is, yeah. is set up. I mean there's there's not that much in Ex Machina that's 
not doable now in terms of the way that the rest of the world functions. Um, I mean, the, the sort of the office at the beginning of the film is was Bloomberg's old offices, and all of the monitors are that's what they had. Mm. Um, I mean, what's on the screens is uh, is was designed for the film um, mm. and was uh, designed based on my laptop because I was the only raging nerd in the room that actually <laughs> sort of has terminals and things all over the place with bits of code on every now and again. Um, so the, the, there's that aspect to it. Um, and there's, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a mobile phone, but there's not actually that much in the way of tech tech. Mm. I suppose they talk. They talk about it. Yeah, and actually, well, the, the, I suppose a bit at the beginning, where um, when Caleb first received the news that he has this golden ticket, and yeah. we see uh, a scan of his face, and there's the suggestion yeah. that that's actually Nathan following him at that particular yes. moment. Um, but and then, and it's it's talked about, but we I suppose yeah, we don't necessarily see. I mean, I mean but I think that's that's a, that's a representation for us of yeah. the ubiquity of Blue Book and Blue Book's reach into the world. Mm. Um, so, it, it, which is you know exactly what many nation states are doing right now to track their population. So it's, I mean, yeah, the film was what, four years ago. So I mean, I, I guess maybe we were four years into the future. But they're small touches, but they're really important because mm. without them, there isn't that crucial sense of disjunct, that sense of the fantastic where, okay, this is very close to our world, but it is not our world. Mm. So take a take a step back and, and be a bit more critical, I guess, of anything of it. Well, know? I suppose it doesn't it also set up this idea of kind of network. If the film is all about relationships, then the film sets up a different kind of networked relationship because that's really important to then establish how Caleb becomes disconnected from that kind of plugged-in world when he talks about well, I think he has no phone signal when he la you know yeah. when he arrives. He has no phone signal. He's geographically dislocated from uh, a, te a technological environment that he's set up to inhabit, yeah. and then he becomes but the, transplanted. The phone is interesting. So we had to design the phone for the film. Um, they they used a film a phone on set that the phone company decided they weren't allowed to use afterwards. So we had to replace it with a CG. Phone. So that's a different kind of so, yeah. so, effect. So yeah. exactly. But but what that meant was that we could design a mobile phone where the camera on the front is bigger which does two things. One, it definitely pushes the HAL 9000 button because you recognize that lens and all of the rest of it. So again, there's another kind of little cultural thing that subliminally will go into people's heads. Mm. And the other thing is that from a practical standpoint, here is a phone branded with the name of this company, which clearly is a lot about gathering information. So there's, there's a lot of design choices which are made to help serve that mm. underlying narrative. Yeah, um, I'm conscious of time, but I'm wondering, just as a final, you know, I, I could talk to you for, for uh, hours, but I, I, is there one, is there a particular sequence in the film, scene in the film, moment in the film, uh, in, in a film that's all about micro expressions and the analysis of micro expressions and what to think, is there a moment in the film that you are particularly proud of or a particular scene in the film that you, you are, yeah, that, that I can kind of, I can remember what I was doing when I was working intently on that. Is there a moment in the film that you are particularly sort of proud of? I think, I think the scene where Ava gets dressed for the first time is a really beautiful piece of filmmaking. And it, it's a, it's a fantastic performance in the way that for that scene, Rob handheld the camera, so there's an in intimacy to that. 
Um, the the nature of the visual effects work was very complicated because not only do we have to create a, a, a digital robot, but also we have to do all the clothing around the, the backside because you can see through the limbs, so you need to see the inside of the stocking and that kind of thing. So that aspect of it was 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 challenging and rewarding uh, when it when it worked, um, and I just think it's it's for me it's a pivotal moment in the film because it's the first time you get prodded to actually confront your feelings about whether you think she has humanity or doesn't, and it's done through the medium of clothing, which mm. is such an important uh, method by which we all in our day-to-day -day lives say a lot about ourselves whether we consciously think about it when we're trying to find something in the morning to put on or not the truth of the matter is that our clothing says a lot mm -hmm. and it's not something that is often thought about unless you're a costume designer so to have that scene in the film do that job really resonated very strongly with yeah me. I because it splits you know plays with the issue of um gender and sexuality and, and the performance of those or the performance of, of gender um, but also as you say in a, in a film that's that's very um, vocal and dialogue of it is a scene that's that's played silently mm -hmm. and I think that's a key to play the Luddite on the podcast which is usually my role so that's we're talking about the scene at the end where she's sort of her skin is no, on no, no, earlier on. Earlier when on, she gets the, first time, the first time she puts clothes on, and she's oh right, yes, okay, right. And she's kind of pulling the, 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 She's kind of pulling these these mm. very soft uh, materials over quite smooth, but in yeah. these industrial yeah. images. Mm. Um, and it's the first time you see her as I don't know. I don't. I don't know what that word is. The yeah. first time you see her as a form that she that she takes. That perhaps is also the first time that she is. Uh, c completely attractive to Caleb I don't know but she then displays herself or she is displayed by the film and within that she is displaying herself to him and they have an interview or, or a, a, a conversation about the way that she looks I believe we haven't really talked much, too much about the sort of technical process so maybe just to use that scene as an example you, you know if, usually if you can explain it to me then listeners will get it hopefully which is that so what's going on there you've got a photograph performance of Alicia putting on yeah. a costume, yeah. and you have to replace that with Ava putting on a costume. Yes, so throughout the film, Alicia is wearing um, a bodysuit that's made out of the same material, the same grey meshed material that you see on her shoulders mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and around her groin and her backside. Um, and that it means that we, we, we then know where we are going to have to replace with CG. So part of the design process of Ava was we put these sort of rubber O-rings, I guess you call them, um, around her wrists and around the tops of her arms and around her ankles. And in narrative terms, their function is to be something that when she puts skin on at the end, the skin can anchor itself to. In For our production purposes, they give us a good line to work with because we say, okay, everything that's the hand side of the O-rings we're keeping as Alicia's actual hands and everything the other side we are going to have to replace with CG. So the first thing that we do is we duplicate what the camera is doing, so that's called camera tracking. So we now have a virtual camera in 3D computer space that does exactly the same thing as Rob's camera. We then take our mannequin, our, our armatured model of Ava and frame by frame we position her, uh, uh, Alicia's 
we copy Alicia's performance and we position our armature in exactly the same places. We then rotoscope, which is to draw around the bits that we want to keep. So that would be the face, the hands, the feet, and the clothing in this particular instance. And then we create our digital version of the robot. And uh, in every single setup, we would um, make sure that we photograph the positions of the lighting on set so that we can recreate all of the lights that Rob had. We then have a robot, and now what we are missing is the backside of the clothing, be it the sort of the dress or, or the, the stockings in particular, where she's pulling them up her legs because her legs you can mostly see through. So we had to create a digital version of the stockings to do the inside of the stockings as you see her pull her up, and we have to do a CG version of her hand for that shot because you can see her hand through her leg, but obviously you can't see Alicia's hand through her real leg. So in that particular instance, that is a bit of animation because we didn't know what her hand was actually doing, so we had to animate the hand to do something believably handy at that <laughs> point. So it's a colossal amount of work for what is not a big visual effects-y, shouty, shouty, everything exploding-y moment, which is one of the other things I love about the film, is we are, in visual effects, not often asked to do things that are elegant. Um, so it, it's a treat when you can with our work and, and, and our artistry actually make something that is, is delicate and, and, and quite exquisite. And the, the labour intensity of that moment did that because it sounds like you did a lot of work pre, um, pre-production to try and sort of create a, a, a synergy between what's going on visually and narratively and what you need it to happen technically. Yes, absolutely. So does that moment come out and you go, okay, that's just a moment in the script that's going to have to be labour intensive because it's going to have to be, or did it? was it one of those, oh, we forgot about that bit moments? Um, well, there weren't that many we forgot about that moments because we had enough time in pre-production to really think through everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, I was expecting the, the the rendering, the sort of the creation of the images to be more taxing to create something that photographically blended into the set than it ended up being. Um, and I think the reason why it went better than I was expecting was because we were able to accurately capture the lighting for every single setup. So we, we had a bit of a leg up there. The body tracking side of it, as in the duplication of Alicia's performance, was harder than I thought because the the your natural assumption I think is that you might think that if someone's moving around a lot that must be harder to duplicate because there's more movement it's actually not true the hardest thing is when someone's standing still because no one is actually standing still humans can't do standing still so everyone is ever so slightly subtly shifting and because we need to make sure that all of the robotic parts are anchored to an actual hand that is just gently shifting in space that duplication of performance has to be absolutely sub-millimetre perfect. And that was astonishingly challenging. And we had a a brilliant team that, over the course of post-production, just became utter experts at that. And and by the end of it, there would be nobody else in the world who would be able to touch them at doing that kind of work. And it was spectacular. I have one more impossible question for Andrew, but um, do you have any? No, no, no. Go for it. No, no, go for it. Okay. So, I've never met an Oscar winner before. Uh, Do you get a goodie bag, and what's in it? 
Uh, no, and therefore nothing at all. Oh, well, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. um, the fantasy is is crushed. I've heard all these stories of iPods in. Um, I think you need to be more famous and prettier than oh, do I you? am to get that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, on that bombshell. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for coming in talking to us about about a film that I'm still thinking about. We'll continue to think about both now and between now and when the podcast actually comes out. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your work. Um, we n- would normally end with a sort of what's coming up, things, where can people find you? So um, yes. Uh, well, if you want to find me, probably the best place is, is Twitter. I'm at Andrew RJW. Um, I'm currently working on a television series called Devs, which is with Alex Garland again, um, and that's coming out on FX in the States, and I'm not sure on what other networks worldwide next year at some point. Uh, um, what's the pitch for that, if you can tell us it? Uh, the, yeah. the or, is it or is it, you know, under lock and key? Well, it, it's, it's again set in uh, a, a slightly futuristic uh, San Francisco tech um, community and if you like Ex Machina I think you will like devs. Terrific. If if Ex Machina is exploring a big philosophical idea i.e. human consciousness through the medium of technological near future sci-fi devs is doing something similar with a different philosophical conundrum. We will be sure to check it out. Yeah, um, You can find us at fantasy-animation.org or on Twitter at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, as well as on Facebook where you can um, comment on what we've got to say, uh, leave us some feedback and perhaps suggest some future episodes. Um, if any budding uh, visual effects artists are inspired by what they've um, heard here, write a blog post for us. You can contact us via the website and we'd love to hear from you. Um, but for now, this has been Fantasy Animation. I've been Alex Sargent. I have been Chris Holiday. And continue to will, will, I will always, be, philosophically, always, who knows? Yes. We're I always will. in a process of becoming. We are. I will be individuated as Chris Holiday <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Uh, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.